begin. I was recently asked by one of my students who had to write an essay on Ibn Arabi why I have devoted 30 years of my life to studying the works of an obscure, at least in modern Western terms, medieval thinker. And the answer that I found myself giving, giving was I've done this because these works embody a completely different perspective than the one which is prevalent in our society now. And that since my, since my 20s, when I left experimental science, in fact, I have felt that our modern perspective, and particularly the explanations presented to us by science, is too narrow. Therefore, I have felt the need to look at alternatives in which Ibn Arabi has engaged my attention the most. And this is not to say that there are not many other traditions which have many important things to say, or perhaps the same important things to say. And in fact, I'm sitting myself here to define myself today as living proof of this, as I have just been preceded between an exponent of what is obviously a profound Western spiritual tradition, and I will be followed by the exponent of a profound Buddhist tradition. I've found that my students' question has been present to me while writing this talk on the theme, the spiritual and material. Our culture has developed an extraordinary knowledge about the material world and the way that it operates. There is no doubting the very great achievements of science. But along the way, certain things which were known to previous cultures and societies, going back to antiquity, have been discarded or ceased to be cultivated, so that over time they have become lost or inaccessible to us. And this is not only a practical or intellectual knowledge, but I would say a certain kinds of sensibility or awareness, which perhaps at one time were taken for granted and so not needing specific cultivation and of course in some cases were actively discouraged. But now in the 20th century, it seems to me that we are witnessing a kind of end point of the trajectory on which we set ourselves in the West three or four centuries ago. And from many people, different quarters, people are asking questions about the fundamental stance we have adopted. For one thing, some of our chickens are now coming home to roost, and we can, be, can begin to see that such one-sided concentration upon materiality has had effects upon the world which may threaten our very existence. One could term the knowledge we have discarded along the way as spiritual knowledge or knowledge of the interior world as opposed to that of the exterior. And as I hope we will see, Ibn Arabi's perspective is especially valuable, not only because his work constitutes a vast summum of this, of this type of knowledge, but also because he makes it clear that it is not a question of choosing one side over the other, but understanding that both, we understand to encompass both aspects, the, the exterior and the interior, as human beings. I'm going to talk about causality because this is the raison d'etre of science, whose job it is to explain to us how and why things happen, whether it be a boiling of a kettle or the creation of the universe. And so it provides a good basis for making correlations between Ibn Arabi's thoughts and our own contemporary perspective. Ibn Arabi discusses two fundamental types of causation, which are outlined succinctly at the beginning of the very short chapter 297 in Futuhat al-Makir on the knowledge of the self or of the soul. And this is the core text for this talk. I've, I've, I haven't done a PowerPoint, but you'll find all the Arabic texts in your in your sort of folder if you want to follow along with them. So this is text one. He says. There is no existent but God, but he has brought about the appearance of things in existence through secondary causes, 
and the thing which is caused can have no existence except through that cause. So each cause thing has a face towards the cause and a face towards God. And so it is an ismuth, a barzak, or a, or, or a place of joining between the cause and God. Unquote. Here he delineates two faces of everything which comes into existence, whether it be animate or inanimate. One is through what he calls secondary causes, for which the word is as barb, which is a root which means ropes or the guy ropes of a tent. The image is the linking, the, the connecting links of cause and effect which tie everything in the universe together and by which the whole system is held up. As William Chittick points out, for Ibn Arabi, what he means by the world, the cosmos or the external material world, is virtually synonymous with the operation of these secondary causes. In his day, the basic understanding was an emanationist one in which everything was seen as originating in the one, in Platinian style, and descending through the heavenly spheres in a kind of vertical causal chain until they arrived at this elemental level. These days we have a very different picture which is fundamentally horizontal. That is, we see our, all our chains of cause and effect are fundamentally material upon material. But this is still a system of secondary causation. According to the other aspect, everything has a face towards God or to remove the concept from particular religious associations, we could say towards the real or towards the one reality who is the origin of all things. And this is a reference to what Ibn Ikari calls the private face, by which everything is connected to its interior by a secret private connection without any intermediary, even after the process of creation has taken place, or we have to say, even after it has apparently taken place. In line with the understanding principle of Wachdat al-Wujud, or unity of being, which is at the heart of Ibn Arabi's metaphysical vision, this is the connection of being, Wujud, by virtue of which there is no real separation between the thing and its origin. Therefore, whereas by the first phase, every come distant becomes distant from its origin as it comes into being, connected only by a chain of causal connection stretching back to a distant starting point, through this phase, it never loses its original closeness. Ibn Arabi therefore relates it to the withness expressed in the Quranic saying, I, God, am with you wherever you are. And it's important to state here that for Ibn Arabi, who is deeply committed to the principle that there is only one reality, these two faces are two aspects of a single situation. They exist simultaneously for any created thing, and as such they embody the, same, the principle that the same reality is present in both the external world and the interior world. We may see them as different or even contradictory aspects, but our tasks as human beings is to be the barzak or isthmus which unites them. And Ibn Arabi relates this principle to another Quranic quote, which is really is one of the um, central to his whole vision. Quote, I will show them my signs in the horizon, that is, in the external world, and in themselves, that is, in their interior world, until they know that he is the real. Or, given the ambiguity of these Arabic pronouns, we could perhaps also say, until they know that it is all the real. 
So I'm going to base this talk around these two types of causality, considering first the aspect of secondary causation, with which we all have some familiarity, to see what light Ibn Arabi's ideas may cast on this, and then the aspect of the private phase, looking at some things that we might not be so familiar with. Ibn Arabi's treatment of secondary causes is a very important aspect of his thinking, both in his cosmology and his delineation of the spiritual path. And we're only going to look at cosmology in the talk, but perhaps in the seminar we will look more at what, what, what these implications are for the spiritual path. Unlike some of his contemporaries, he gives a degree of reality to ordinary material causation, and many of his ideas are actually compatible with aspects of modern scientific thought. For instance, some, like, unlike some of his contemporaries, who saw these links merely as habits or customs, which could be overridden at any point by, ground, by, at any point by God on the grounds that he is omnipotent, Ibn Arabi acknowledges the relationship between, that the relationship between cause and effect is a fixed and necessary one. As he says in our first quote, the thing which is caused can have no existence except through that cause. His argument basically that these secondary causes were created and set up by God himself and as such they should be acknowledged and conformed to. The quotation which forms the title of this talk comes from the chapter of Moses in Fusus al-Hikam from the following passage, which is text 2. The real governs the cosmos only through itself or through its forms. He governs it only through itself in the same way as a child depends upon its generator or effects depend upon their causes, condition things upon their preconditions or realizable things upon their realities. All these are part of the universe and they constitute the rough governance of the real in it. So he governs the cosmos through itself. According to this perspective, the operation of the secondary causes are in fact the very stuff of the way that the real or the one reality operates within the world. In other words, he is imminent in the causal, ordinary causal relationships that we see. So the fact, for instance, that things come into a being according to definite lines of cause and effect through processes such as evolution does not mean that there is no creator or ultimate governing force. Within Ibn Arabi's perspective, these are all agents of his action and of his care towards the world. This word tadbir, which I have translated as governed, can also mean direction or management and has connotations of provenance and care towards the creation. Thus, for Ibn Arabi, the coherence of the universe and its appearance as an ordered system in which one thing depends upon another is an important principle because it reveals the action of a caring and intelligent creator. It is the outer face of an interior organizing spirit. He would therefore agree with modern scientists that it is not necessary or even desirable to invoke a transcendent creator merely to fill in gaps in our understanding the world being a complete expression of a perfect and complete reality is also perfect and complete in its own terms, even if our understanding of it is not. The problem is that it is so complete and perfect that the existence of a governor is not necessarily obvious to us. As he says in the chapter of Adam in the Fasus, the rulership of the real becomes hidden within the creation. And this is precisely because the immediacy of the secondary causes as they impinge upon our bodily senses and our intellect overwhelm us. 
things look as if they are autonomous and self-subsistent, that is, working away by themselves. And we are so entranced by the beauty and the intricacy of the mechanisms that we discern in their operation that we do not see what lies behind them. One of the analogies which Ibn Arabi uses for this is that of the shadow puppet theatre, where the shadows of the puppets are cast onto a screen so that the audience can see their movement. This is so enthralling that the audience think that the figures are real and are moving on their own accord, and they fail to discern the real object which is behind the screen. Therefore, Ibn Arabi says that the world is a veil to itself. That is, it is a veil over its own reality. And in the Futuhat, in text 3, he says, God put, the secondary, put into place the secondary causes and made them like veils. They convey everyone who knows they are, they are veils to him, but they send everyone who takes them as lords away from him. And by lords, my understanding is that he means two things. A, that we see these causes or this system of cause and effect as self-subsistent, that is, existing on, in their own right and not depending upon a creator or a first cause. And second, following on from this, we credit them with real power over us, um, believing that they determine who we are and what we do. And this is obviously relevant to the discussion of science, as since the 17th century, the movement of Western scientific ideas has been towards granting the world more and more self-subsistence. Whereas Newton saw the world as a place of revelation of God, the advocates of the mechanical universe have gradually diminished the role of the creator, first to be merely the starter of the machine, which then ran along by itself, and then out of the picture altogether, as the question of origin became sidelined when understanding of the mechanisms explained so much. In the last century, we have seen the same kind of process occurring within biology, as that, so that many modern biologists, like Richard Dawkins, believe that the complexity of life itself can be explained poor, purely in material terms, without any external input. What Ibn Arabi tells us, however, is that if the real is imminent in the secondary causes, the facts alone do not prove anything. Science can reveal to us mechanisms and material processes, but what they mean is a different matter. To go back to the analogy, without further information, such as the screen being lifted, there is nothing to determine the status of the shadow play, to say whether it is a real event or whether it is just a reflection. It all depends on the eye with which we look, and this requires input at another level. And actually, it's not quite true that there is nothing within the secondary causes themselves to indicate the truth, because there are problems at the level of intellect with any causal chain, which is that they have to begin and end somewhere, unless one is happy to accept a situation of infinite regress. Therefore, to just take the matter of beginning, it is necessary to postulate some sort of first cause which must have a different nature to all others. That is, it must cause, but not be caused. Therefore, even with the great scientific theories of our day, we are faced with ultimate questions which cannot really be answered at the level of science per se. 
within evolutionary theory, we can account for the evolution of life from a single microcell to the level of the human being. But we cannot definitively say how life first entered into the inanimate matter for that to make that first cell. And we are not able to reproduce the process. So origin it remains at the level of mystery. And there's a lot more that could be said about this, but we need to move on because of time to say what Ibn Arabi says about the problem of origination. And this is text four. He says, Through the setting up of the secondary causes, God prevents us from turning towards the origination of things. He sent down the rain, so it fell. People cultivated the earth and sowed seeds and the sun shone. Then the seed sprouted and was harvested, milled, made into dough, chewed with teeth, swallowed and then digested by the stomach and became the life of the body for the sake of the soul. These are the mothers or the foundations of the secondary causes, along with the movement of the heavenly spheres, the circulating of the planets, the shining of the rays. The ear must pierce all these veils in order to hear the word be. Therefore he creates in the believer the power of faith. It runs through his hearing so that he perceives the word be and it runs through his sight so that he witnesses the creator of the secondary causes. Unquote. And just to decipher for those who are not so familiar with Ibn Arabi's metaphysics, this reference to the word be embodies the fact that everything in the world is brought into being, brought into life, if you like, through the divine uttering of the word be, according to the Quranic saying, when we will a thing to become, we say to it be, and it becomes. Here Ibn Arabi does not use the argument from the first cause. In fact, he tends not to produce this kind of intellectual proof. But for him, the additional input comes from faith, by which I understand that he does not mean a personal, religious or intellectual belief. The term imam for him means is for him a very deep-seated, heartfelt following of the message brought through Revelation and the sacred books. And the whole point of these and the whole chain of prophetic revelation as he sees it is that the prophets are people of knowledge who have, if you like, been behind the screen and seen what is there. And so they are able to bring news back to us of how things really are. Even more important in this passage, Ibn Arabi intimates that it is not just a question for us of taking things at the level of intellect or of faith, but of actually seeing the truth for ourselves. We ourselves can go behind the screen. And this brings us naturally to the second part of the talk, because this can only be done by looking at the matter from another perspective, which is the aspect of the private face which was in our own interior. And this has to be done within ourselves, as we cannot access the interior of anything else at least at the beginning. And this turning towards our, our interior, our, our private face, is not just a matter of turning inward, but what Ibn Arabi means by the private face is the deepest and most hidden part of ourselves. Sadruddin Konavi, who was Ibn Arabi's spiritual heir, gives this matter a prominent place in his own metaphysics and says in his Miftar al-Raib, 
quote, the human being is composed of manifold parts and various essences and faculties, but that which is best in him or her is the divine secret, seer, which is the self-disclosure disclosure of the private faith. The meaning of seer in Arabic is a complex root with two lines of meaning. And it's very interesting by the beginning of this symposium because one is related to happiness and pleasure, to this principle of joy which has already come up. And the other is related to, to, the, to meanings of secrets and mystery, which is what the meaning is here. And the root, interestingly enough, also generates the word for the umbilical cord, sur, and for mind and consciousness, sarira in Arabic. Chittik translates it either as innermost consciousness or secret heart. While those of you who heard Stephen Hurtenstein's talk last year will know that in Ibn Arabi's technical vocabulary there are different levels to what he called the heart, which is both the centre and the organ of perception in the human being, and the most inward of these is the seer, which could therefore be translated as the heart of the heart or the innermost heart. Ibn Arabi says of these private faces, quote, they belong to every possibility which is originated from him by his saying be, by virtue of the divine desire, irada, turning its face towards them. The thing which is caused does not know the private face of anything else. And even though it has a private face in its own self, it may know that or be ignorant of it. It is important to emphasize the hidden nature of this private face within us because the mindset of secondary causation is increasingly invading even our own interior space. So if we are asked who are you or why are you like you are now, we now we have a whole load of developmental and cognitive theories which explain our inner nature to us and disciplines like psychoanalysis which would see us as having been formed psychologically by events in our past. There is nothing wrong with any of these in themselves, but it is important to recognize that these are also all secondary causes which conveil our reality. And it becomes especially important to recognize this, I feel, in the face of the barrage of information which is now starting to descend on us from neuroscience as we start to understand in detail the structure and operation of the brain. And I am personally absolutely fascinated by this and think that a great good will come of it, but only as long as we resist the interpretation which some scientists are already starting to make, that is, that this will explain everything about us. Therefore, in the matter of this private face, in the seer of our innermost heart, it is clear that here also there is a question of seeing through the veils of the secondary causes to our own reality. In fact, the uncovering of this face, which means that we become aware of it and what happens within it, is the fundamental action which distinguishes the realized or knowledgeable human being from the ignorant one in Ibn Arabi's understanding. For him, this knowledge of the private face is the foundational knowledge by which we really deserve to call human and from which all other spiritual knowledges can come about. The concept of face is also complex in Arabic. Face in English may indicate something fixed like the face of a building or our own face on the front of our heads. 
But what is meant here is something much more dynamic, in fact totally and essentially dynamic, as the word waj has an implicit meaning of turning towards or turning in the direction of. So when one talks about the private faith, there is a meaning of turning away from other things, even if things, these are very subtle things like thoughts towards one's origin, which is the one reality. We might call this reality God, but we don't have to. We might think of it as the origin or the ground of being of everything. And there is a sense of singularity here, of turning from manyness towards singleness, which of course immediately confronts us with a problem. Um, Ibn Arabi is deeply committed to the truth that there is only one being, one reality. And if one tries to face this, there is a paradox, because facing implies duality. And the resolution of this for Ibn Arabi is the realization that that which is facing from our side does not really exist, by which it's meant that it does not have an independent self-subsisting existence, but is totally dependent upon its source. I believe the Buddhists call this the realization that things have no inherent existence. They are essentially empty of being. And we have already heard that Kierkegaard refers to this as becoming nothing. And this is why Ibn Arabi goes on in text 5, he says, By virtue of this phase, the private phase, everything is needed towards God, not towards its cause at the level of, cause, of creation. As this is the divine cause, which is closer than the cause at the level of creation. The cause at the level of creation is separate from it, from the thing, or you could translate this or separate the thing, yes? But this cause is not qualified either with separateness or with near contact, although in the reality of the, the human being it is closer than the jugular vein, for its closeness is closer than that. And this closer than the jugular vein is another Quranic reference of God who says, I am closer to them than their, than their jugular vein. And this neediness, which he talks about as the facing to the neediness towards God, is an ontological neediness. It is, I believe, what George was referring to as absolute dependence, meaning that it is a neediness for our very being or our very existence. It is why it's so very close. Without it, we are not. And this bringing of emptiness in Ibn Arabi's terminology, in this being empty, is to do with receptivity. To be empty is have to the ability to receive what is given without adding or changing it, to be a pure receptacle. And from the other side, the divine side, the face that looks back at us is not that of the absolute oneness, the ahadiyya, because this not, does not enter into any kind of relationship. But the aspect by which the one reality is an expression that is, we saw in the previous quote, the aspect by which is of the divine desire, irada, turning its face towards us. And this is a reference, as most of you will know, to Ibn Arabi's understanding of the very motive of creation, summed up in the first lines in the opening chapter of Fasus al-Hakam, which is an exposition of wisdom of divinity in the word of Adam, who is the archetypal human being. And even more succinctly, in the Hadith Qutsi, quote, I was a hidden treasure and I loved to be known, therefore I created the world so that I would be known. 
which points to the divine desire for the expression of his own attributes and qualities in the world. And what all this results in is that the private face within each thing is in reality nothing other than a locus of reception for the constant effusion of the divine self-revelation without any intermediary. And this is why Conovy calls the seer the self-revelation of the private face. What happens here is a secret and specific to the person, as you might expect from something which happens from seer to seer, from mystery to mystery. And he says, God gives every form, both high and low, as special or private knowledge, which is specific only, which is known only to that specific recipient, as God wills. These are the knowledges of taste, which are not spoken of or recounted. No one knows them except the one who has tasted them. And it is not in the realm of the possibility that the one who has tasted them could convey them to one who has not tasted them. In this matter, people are in different degrees whose principle of ranking is unknown. And this reinforces that this private knowledge can only be reached by coming to know the process within ourselves. We cannot know it by looking at anything outside of ourselves. And this connection through the private face is causative. As we have seen, Ibn Arabi refers to this as the divine cause in us, as it has an effect upon it, on us, but this is a spiritual causation which is not visible as such on the outside. And so for the final part of this talk, I just want to explore a few implications of this, of this um, connection being causal. The first is that although we say that the thing which comes from the relative side is non-existent essentially, what is bestowed through the private face is being itself. This is, as I stated at the beginning, that this is a connection in wujud or existence which happens at a level which is outside of time. It is through there, this therefore, that we receive existence in which we come to be. And this is clearly, essentially, primarily causative. <laughs> in addition, it is through this, <clears throat> Adsadrud in Conovy, according to Richard Todd, who has done a pioneering study of his metaphysic, explicitly identifies the seer or the private place as the place within us into which the divine spirit is blown when we are brought into being, as described in Quran when the first human Adam is moulded out of building clay and then God blows into him the divine spirit. And divine spirit, as we've already mentioned, the Akbarian understanding is also first intellect, which is the principle of self-consciousness and self-awareness. So, it is by virtue of the self-revelation of the real received in our innermost heart that we also have our own sense of being and a sense of identity. That is, that we have consciousness and can speak of ourselves as I. And then following on from this, as this blowing of the breath extends to the rest of our interior world, it is through this that we have the whole range of experience, memory and feeling that is entailed in being a conscious, a conscious being. 
And one of the points to make is that Ibn Arabi makes it clear that we do not own or possess this self-awareness or this consciousness, but we receive it perpetually from the one reality by virtue of this holy private spiritual connection. What is more, it is clear from what Ibn Arabi has said in all the quotes that you have read that this situation is not limited to human beings but is true of every created thing. Now it is widely accepted, I think, that we human beings do have an inward dimension, an interior life. Although I have recently met people who tell me that they take a totally, entirely mechanistic view and discount their own inner lives as the, um, as the, uh, as the meaningless action of a mechanical brain. However, I think this is still not the usual way in which we understand ourselves today. But since Descartes' ideas gained dominance in the 17th and 18th century, we have become accustomed to seeing other entities merely as mechanisms and machines. Descartes, of course, famously separated out the realms of spirit and matter and designated the former entirely to the human being, putting all other entities into the category of, ma of matter. And as you will know, he thought that even animals were machines, and in his work there are mechanical models of animals, just like sort of engines or something. <laughs> even he thought that even animals were machines with no feeling or consciousness, no inner life. And it was, precisely this, it was precisely this designation of the realms of the animals, plants and minerals to the category of the inert which allowed the spectacular development of mechanistic science which set out to discover the external connections between things, between things which were fundamentally passive. However, from Ibn Arabi's point of view, as we've seen, every existent thing has a private face, not just human beings. This means that they too have an inner dimension by which they remain intimately connected to their origin and by virtue of which they have not only existence and life but also a degree of consciousness. The distinction between other things and human beings for Ibn Arabi is not one of fundamental structure but of degree. It is the total divine spirit which is blown into man, which gives him a total degree of consciousness. In his terminology, the human being is capable of receiving the self-revelation of all the divine names and attributes, whereas other existents are only capable of receiving a partial revelation. So they have different degrees of consciousness. But for him, even the things of the mineral world are alive and have a degree of consciousness and as such they are in a state of glorifying God. What's more, Ibn Arabi does not only apply this insight to each individual thing of the universe but to the universe itself as a whole. At the moment when we talk about the universe, even those who feel that we are imbued with a spiritual perspective tend to automatically think through our education and our upbringing, we associate the universe with matter and we think of its evolution merely in terms of um, material causation, something which came about from an unknown origin and which is governed by laws and forces which act internally. That is through what Ibn Arabi calls secondary causes. 
There are some more organic models around now which treat the universe as if it was a living entity evolving with a degree of self-regulation and purpose, but this is still seen as fundamentally self-subsistent. But for Ibn Arabi, both of these are one-dimensional visions. For him, the material constitution and causal connections of the universe are only the outer face, and the universe itself also has an interior dimension, which is his governance spirit. As such, it is not like a machine at all, or even a living organism. It is like a person. And within the Islamic and more ancient traditions as well, this was a very common way of referring to the universe as the great man. Yes? And, 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 our understand, and people's understanding of it was that it was just like ourselves, that, this, that the universe had an outer face and an inner face, an outer you know, physical reality and an inner spiritual one. However, this inner dimension of other universe and other beings is hidden from us as long as we do not know our own inner dimension. It is only through coming to know the secret of the divine revelation within ourselves that we can also recognize it in all the other beings of the world. For it is the same reality which manifests in every existent. Descartes' view of spirit and matter um, separated us from the other creatures in the world and put us in a kind of lordly level where we see ourselves as radically different from anything else. But in Ibn Arabi's view, there is a sense of kinship and affinity with all things arising from the underlying oneness of all being. Sajudin Konevi calls the one being, um, in his metaphysics, the common ground of all, of all existence. And from this recognition, we can see that the same attributes we find in ourselves are manifest even in non-human creatures. Thus, Ibn Arabi, as Denny Grill has pointed out in um, both the Futahat and in the Rual Quds, describes in several places conversations that he had with inanimate beings who were acting under the name the speaker. And in some cases, he describes how he received um, instruction and education from the inanimate things of the, of, of, of the world. And this is, at the beginning of my talk, I said that what we seem to have lost in the, pro in the development of mechanistic science is not only knowledge, but also a kind of sensibility, a kind of awareness and a way of dealing with the world. And we deal with other creatures as if they were mere outside faces without acknowledging that they too all have inner dimensions. So to conclude... This understanding that everything has an inward dimension is a knowledge which therefore has been quite lost, I would suggest, in our present culture. Regaining it, which can only be done by looking inward and becoming aware of our own private face and all that follows from that, would have enormous implications. For example, even those who are most dedicated and concerned about the ecology of the planet and recognise it as being in an ailing state are still largely dominated by a mechanistic understanding of the world. Therefore, they can only propose solutions which are based upon action at an exterior level. But this will be never be adequate, for as Ibn Tarabi tells us, the world is sustained by its interior, by its soul or spirit.
and it is only by recognition of that dimension that real balance can be restored. But this does not mean that we reject the outer aspect. As we said at the beginning, for Ibn Arabi, it is the essential function of the human being to join together these two dimensions of spirit and matter in order to affirm that there is, in reality, only one existence. Therefore, to end with a quote, quote, it is necessary, he says, that every seeker be alone with himself in the company of his Lord in his innermost heart, this is seer. For God has given human beings an inward dimension and an outer dimension so that they might be alone with God through their inward dimension and witness him through their outward dimension in his secondary causes after having gazed upon him in their inward dimension so that they discern him, the real, in the existence of the secondary causes. Otherwise, they will never know him.